If you are staying in the room with us, I want to encourage you to get out a copy of God's Word, get out a Bible. Um, something else that you uh, may have grabbed on the way in are sermon notes. If you didn't, they're right outside the door, straight to your left, right beside the doors. If you just don't want to get up and go get them right now, you can get them uh, on the way out and just review, see how closely I actually preach the notes. We'll see. We'll see how, how it goes. Um, if you don't have a Bible in front of you, borrow one from someone next to you. Maybe they brought an extra one. You might have some extra holy folks with you today that bring two Bibles just in case. If not, ask them if you can look off theirs. And if you can't do that, pull out uh, your phone. Just have the scriptures in front of you, if at all possible. We're in Matthew chapter 5. We'll also be spending a little bit of time in Matthew 19. Actually, if you grab a notes page, nearly every single passage that you're going to need is included on this notes page, so you can actually reference that as well, and the passage will be on the screen behind me. Matthew 5, 31 and 32. Happy Mother's Day, everyone. Um, let's talk about divorce, all right? I know y'all are starting to envy the nursery volunteers. Like, the longer this series goes, you're like, oh, man, it'd be nice to be in that room over there. And they've got the speakers out there now, and you just, like, tell, hey, can you just turn just down a little more? Just a little more. I can almost not hear it. Okay. Um, listen, uh, we are, I promise you, I'm not trying to torture everyone uh, with these passages on days like today. We're walking through the Sermon on the Mount. Don't blame me. I didn't preach this sermon. You know, Jesus did. Um, so he preached the sermon, and we're walking through it because we want to see what Jesus expects of our lives. How many of you have wondered, you know, now that I've become a Christian, I've trusted in Jesus, what am I supposed to do? And the only answers we typically give are, well, you need to start going to church, you need to read your Bible, you need to pray, you need to evangelize, and all those things are obviously true. But listen, Jesus has given you specific things to do. You want to know what you're supposed to do? Guess what? Resist anger. That's what you're supposed to do if you follow Jesus. That's what he told us a couple weeks ago. Uh, what else are you supposed to do? Resist lust. Oh, man, that's not, that's not something that, you know, you, you, you imagine following Jesus, you have a nice cup of coffee, and, you know, it's early in the morning, and just beautiful outside, and you're reading God's Word, and you may have experiences like that, but Jesus says, you want to follow me, you have to do hard things. Resist lust, resist anger, be salt, and be light. Next week, we're going to see, he just says, tell the truth, be honest, and here this morning, he gives us some instructions related to divorce. Now, many of us have experienced the pain and the heartbreak of divorce in, in one way or another. Uh, my parents divorced when I was 20 or 21. I can't, can't really remember. That was a, a fog of a couple years. But I was 20 or 21. My sister was uh, a senior in high school. My brother was uh, in middle school, about to, about to enter high school. And uh, my parents have been married for 20 plus years. Um, and even though I wasn't, you know, nine, it, it had a, a, it surprised me at the time, the effect that it had on me. So, so I know, I know the pain of divorce. And, and even, even as we're going to see today, if you were to evaluate what led to my parents' divorce, it would fall within the exception that, that Jesus gives here in Matthew 5. So the divorce was permissible, but that doesn't take away the pain of divorce. It doesn't matter how old you are. You could be an adult and you learn that your parents divorced. It has a profound effect on you. And of course, if you have been 
divorce yourself. There, there are some ways in which divorce is worse than death. It leaves emotional scars on husbands, wives, children, extended families, friends, church members. Divorce affects everyone. And honestly, divorce is rather common, even among Christians. So some of you may have divorced. And if you haven't, you may be like me and you may be a child of divorce. And I say all that to say right at the beginning, I understand how sensitive this topic is. And if you struggle with it, I want you to know you're not alone. I struggle with it too. It is hard to think about. It is harder to talk about. I'm thankful for our philosophy of preaching and our commitment to God's word in this church because if it was up to me, I would never ever preach this topic because I don't want to study it and I don't want to think about it. I don't want to look at it and I don't want any of those those emotions to come up in me. But I also want to encourage you to stick with me this morning because for as much pain and heartache and guilt that you may feel from a discussion about divorce, there is even more hope and beauty and redemption to see and to embrace in marriage and ultimately what marriage points to. I want to show you two things this morning from these two verses. First, I want to show you a prohibition of divorce. Jesus prohibits divorce. And then second, I want to show you a provision for divorce. Jesus provides for divorce. Let's look at each of these. So first, we see in this passage a prohibition of divorce and remarriage. Jesus packs a heavy punch In this very short passage, I want you to listen to him again. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, this is, this is one of those passages where Jesus is teaching something, and right in the middle of what he's teaching, he gives an exception. But he is teaching something. Jesus is making one simple point. Divorce and remarriage are prohibited for his followers, period. We have to, we have to see it this way in order for the exception to make any sense at all. If we begin with caveats and if we begin with the exception, we will totally miss the whole reason Jesus includes this in the Sermon on the Mount in the first place. We have an exception to discuss, and we're going to discuss it later, but that exception proves the rule. And so we need to focus on the rule. Look look at the passage again. Look, look at it, look, look again at it. This time, here's what we're going to do. We're going to ignore the exception clause. We're going to take it out because um, we're going to deal with it in just a second. If the exception clause was not there, how would this read? It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. We have to see it this way first. By the way, Mark and Luke, they record the same teaching from Jesus. Neither of them include an exception. Neither of them. And I say that 
to tell you that while Matthew includes an exception clause, the exception is not the main point of Jesus' teaching. The main point Jesus is making is that divorce and remarriage are prohibited in his kingdom. And I believe he gives us this for two reasons. Reason number one, divorce and remarriage are prohibited because our approach to marriage is naturally pharisaical. We, we have the wrong approach to marriage. We, we, we enter it the wrong way. We look at it the wrong way. We, we, we orient ourselves toward marriage in the wrong way. This is what was happening in context here. So similar to previous passages in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus references an Old Testament teaching. He refuses to change it, but reveals its deeper meaning. He's doing that here. The formula, it's not quite as clear as it has been the last two weeks, but Jesus is essentially sticking to his strategy. He wants to show us how kingdom righteousness is different from and greater than the righteousness of the Pharisees. And the first thing that he does is he paraphrases Deuteronomy 24, 1. He shortens it to say, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. This is what you have heard. This is what we find in the law, in the teachings of Moses. Here's the full quotation from Deuteronomy 24, 1. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs from his house. Okay, And then he goes on. It goes all the way through verse 4 and you can see the full context. But what we need is right in the first half of Deuteronomy 24.1. A man takes a wife. He marries her. Uh, she finds no favor in his eyes. Why? Because he has found some indecency in her. And then he writes her a certificate of divorce. And Jesus summarizes that because he wants to focus on something the Pharisees were getting wrong. They were approaching marriage the wrong way. And he says, you have heard that it was said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Completely skipping over what would lead to the divorce. He does that intentionally. Moses permitted divorce in the case of indecency. Now, indecency most likely referred to sexual sin in the context of the marital relationship, which we have a word for that, adultery. But indecency was interpreted to mean a hundred different things throughout the centuries. And this is, this is why the people of Israel, they struggled with divorce over and over again throughout their history, and especially here at the time of Jesus. This permission for divorce led to rampant permissiveness. And Deuteronomy 24 was used to justify divorce for almost any reason. Now, there were two competing schools of thought that were battling it out in the first century over uh, what should lead to divorce. And the first was from the school of Rabbi Shammai. All right? and, and he held a really strict view that sexual sin is the only ground for divorce. Then there was a second school, the school of Rabbi Hillel, and they held a, a very loose view. They believed that Deuteronomy 24 allowed men to divorce their wives for, and not limited to, but some of the following reasons. If she ruins dinner, that's indecent, you know? You find some indecency in her. She's like, man, I keep coming home, dinner, it's not, it's not warm, it's cold, it's not good, I'm sick of this, it's indecent, let me write her a certificate of divorce. Uh, not keeping the home uh, clean and orderly, like, man, I'm getting sick of coming home, and, and this, this house is a mess. Uh, it's indecent. Deuteronomy 24 says, all I have to do is write her a certificate of divorce. Listen, 
She isn't as pretty as she used to be. That's one. That's indecent, guys, you know, like to not be as pretty as you used to be. And so they would say, okay, it's indecent. What does Deuteronomy 24 say? Write our certificate of divorce and we're out. And this was one, this was my favorite. You just don't like her anymore. <laughs> like, you know, you just, you don't, you know, I don't find, she doesn't find favor in my eyes anymore. I'm not fond of her as, as I used to be. And so we divorce. Honestly, is it not, is it not similar to how people, a lot of people divorce today? Just how loose it can be. And it's just, well, you know, we're just struggling. We've, they, we, have a, we have a phrase for it ourselves. You know, the, they used indecent and they turned to Deuteronomy 24. We said, well, we just have some irreconcilable differences. You know, you always point to that. And it's just this blanket term. Ah, we just, we're struggling to get along. It's not good for anybody for us to be fighting all the time. We just, we need to divorce. Just write our certificate. What do we need to do legally? You see, later in Matthew 19, the Pharisees approach Jesus. And they want him to engage in this debate. And so they're trying to trap him, and they ask him, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Now, here's what they're trying to do. They don't really care what Jesus thinks about it. They're trying to pin him into a corner. They're asking him, what's your interpretation of this verse? On which side would you fall? Do you think that we can divorce our wives for any reason? Or, in their minds, are you going to disregard the law of Moses? Because Moses said that all you have to do is write a certificate of divorce. This is what the Pharisees were focused on. Moses said, all you have to do to be right with God in relation to divorce is just write her a certificate. Just do right by her, and you can get out of the marriage. What say you, Jesus? Jesus, as he often does, he refuses to answer the question. Instead, he takes them all the way back to Genesis 2 and God's design for marriage. And Jesus refuses to engage in debate with them because he says, essentially, the real problem that you have is that you're looking at marriage all wrong. This pharisaical approach to divorce and remarriage is as long as you end the marriage the right way, it doesn't matter if you do it for the right reason. Just be cordial. Just you know, be compliant. Uh, don't, don't cause a fuss. Um, just, just, just do it the right way. Like everything with the Pharisees, the heart doesn't matter to them. God's design for marriage doesn't matter. All that matters is that you give her a certificate. According to the Pharisees, as long as you presented a legal document that outlined the legality of the end of the marriage and the permission of the divorced woman to remarry, you were in full line with the law of Moses. You might have a loose or a strict view of indecency, but that's not what mattered. Do you have your certificate? You're good to go in God's eyes. This was their view. Jesus pushes back against this and he says, you are not keeping the law of Moses. You are not righteous. You are not godly just because you follow the technicality of divorcing your wife with dignity. That won't cut it in Jesus' kingdom. You can't just tell your friends, yeah, we just decided it was better for both of us to just go our separate ways. But listen, I did right by her in the divorce. Like, I didn't give her any trouble. Like, you know, or on the other end, it's like, yeah, we, we divorced. I'm paying child support, though. I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. That's what I'm supposed to do. I, I, didn't, fight, I didn't fight him for custody. You know, we, we have shared custody. I'm not, not fighting for that. I let her keep the patio furniture. Thought it was a nice thing to do, you know. It was good in the divorce. Jesus says, cool, glad you guys are legal. You're on the verge of adultery. He's essentially saying, You've heard Deuteronomy 24 interpreted to mean that you can divorce your spouse for any and every reason. 
But I say to you, everyone who divorces makes his wife commit adultery. Jesus puts his foot down in this culture of rampant, no-fault divorce and says, no, not in my kingdom. Divorce and remarriage have no place here. Jesus has a serious problem with a pharisaical approach to marriage and divorce. If, if we treat our marriages with contempt and feel like we can just call it quits whenever we like, but then say, oh, you know, but look at my certificate of divorce, Jesus, I did it the right way. We will find ourselves in a position much like or worse than the Pharisees. Our righteousness will be no better than theirs. Pharisaical righteousness looks for a justification for divorce when marriage gets hard. It looks for it. Turn to the Bible. Your Bible study turns into a quest for justification for ending this thing. What can I find? Kingdom righteousness sees divorce for what it is, a dreaded and unwanted and painful last resort. Kingdom righteousness sees the beauty of marriage's permanence. It strives to protect it and to work through any difficulties. A pharisaical approach to divorce reveals a very low view of marriage. Looking for a way out of your marriage reveals that you do not possess a righteousness greater than the Pharisees. This is what Jesus is concerned about. There's a second reason that he prohibits divorce and remarriage. And that gets at the heart of what marriage is. Divorce and remarriage are prohibited because of what marriage is. He clearly prohibits divorce and remarriage here. What's not as obvious in this passage is that the passage itself is actually more about marriage than it is divorce. Now, this is a little bit more clear in Matthew 19. You should have this, this passage on your note sheet. You can turn to it if you want. It's Matthew 19, 3 through 6, and this is what we read there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. See, Jesus prohibits divorce and remarriage because of the nature of marriage itself. I mean, what is marriage anyway? What is it? It's so commonplace, and maybe you've been married for years, and, and you don't even really understand what it is. Like, I don't know, it followed college. Like, I, I don't know, it's just my next step. I'm supposed to get married to somebody. Somebody said they would, and I was like, I mean, I can't, yeah, I can't pass up on that. There may not be too many more out there that would. Or what is it, though? It's something we all want. It's something that, you know, it, we, we hate whenever it ends. But, but what, what is it? Well, based on Matthew 19, Jesus would define marriage as the permanent one flesh union of one man and one woman. And we can add from other places in Scripture the ultimate purpose of marriage. And the ultimate purpose of marriage is to reflect God's covenant relationship with his people. And we say all this to say divorce was not part of the Creator's design. It was not part of the creator's design. He's saying, they're saying, hey, will you argue with us about what Moses says 
in Deuteronomy 24. And he said, no, I want to show you what we find in Genesis 1 and 2. Because in the beginning, divorce was not a part of the equation. There was no divorce in the Garden of Eden. Divorce is not God's will, even though he allows for it in some instances. And divorce distorts three primary aspects of God's design for marriage. First thing it does is it distorts his design for marriage to be a one-flesh union. And that's why Jesus calls remarriage adultery. I mean, isn't, isn't that just a little strange and, and maybe a little uncomfortable and startling? I mean, remarriages don't feel like adultery. If someone tells me they, they got married, I mean, one of my parents got remarried. It didn't feel like adultery necessarily. I mean, you have a ceremony and people are committing to each other. It's, it's a wedding. It's a marriage. And Jesus calls it adultery. How? That's what he says. How does, a, how does divorce cause a woman to commit adultery. That's what Jesus says. Divorce itself is not adultery. Jesus is implying here that a divorced woman would be forced to remarry. And in his day, that was likely true, that a divorced woman would most likely have to remarry in order to survive. And so it's, it's the implied remarriage that causes a divorced woman to commit adultery. But how is it that a divorced and remarried woman or man commits adultery because they are entering into a one flesh union with a person who is not their spouse. According to Jesus, divorces outside the bounds of his given exception are not legitimate. When a man and a woman are married, those two specific individuals become one flesh with each other. That those two specific individuals, one flesh, that's what happens in marriage. And they become one flesh with each other and no one else. The two become one. That's God's design. Divorce and remarriage essentially expand that one flesh union to include others, which is not God's design for marriage. So to end the one flesh union and enter into another is to distort what he wants for marriage and what marriage actually is. There's, there's another way that divorce and remarriage distort God's design, which is why he prohibits it. And it's, it distorts the permanence of marriage. Marriage is meant to be permanent. What God has joined together, let not man separate. Marriage between one man and one woman is meant for life. What do we vow on our wedding day? Till death do us part? That, that isn't just something really sweet to say. Till death do us part is a very solemn, a very biblical vow that flows out of the very heart of God's design for marriage. So Jesus' strong stance against divorce and remarriage reinforces his high view of marriage and its, desi its divine design for permanence. You see, what divorce does is it places a temporary stamp on what God has designed for permanence. Divorce is changing the expiration date of marriage from death to whenever we just don't want to be married anymore. And he has a real problem with it. There's a third, there's a third thing that divorce and remarriage do to distort God's design for marriage. So he designed it to be one flesh. 
He designed it to be permanent. And finally, he designed marriage to reflect the gospel. And divorce and remarriage distort this reflection. You see, the ultimate reason divorce and remarriage are prohibited and the ultimate reason why violating the marriage covenant is the only permissible reason for divorce and remarriage in the first place is that marriage is a picture of the gospel. This is clearer in Ephesians 5 where the Apostle Paul writes, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. In the gospel, Jesus unites himself to his people through his sinless life, his sacrificial death, and his victorious resurrection. Jesus died for sinners to bring them into covenant relationship with God. And through the gospel, those of us who are far from God are brought near, and he will never leave or forsake us. The mystery of marriage is that it displays this relationship between Christ and the church. Marriage paints a picture and it tells a story of God's covenant love and faithfulness to his bride, the church. And marriage is meant by God to put that reality on public display in the world. Divorce, of course, tells a different story. It tells the story of a God who loves conditionally and who abandons that covenant relationship. But I want to encourage you. How often do you think of your marriage like that? That the purpose of our marriage, the, hi- the highest purpose of our marriage, is to put on display for the world to see God's covenant love for his people. That in your marriage, you are showing people how God relates to them. It- it's-, it's a high calling. I mean, what-, what, if- what if you viewed it that way? What if your approach to marriage was, I get to show everyone just how much God loves them? In your marriage, in the way you relate to each other, in the way you speak to each other, in the way that you interact, in in your faithfulness to one another. You see, Jesus prohibits divorce and remarriage completely. It is not his will, it is not his plan for your marriage that it end in divorce. God's desire for your marriage is simple. That you stay married. That you stay faithful that you stick it out. The two have become one. Let not mere man rip apart what God himself has joined together. So I want to be extra clear on this point. If you ever feel like, man, just need a fresh start. Need a fresh start, someone new. We've had a good run. Um, All good things come to an end. And just however many cliches you can just pull out of the hat, you know. And you start start feeling this way. Here's one thing you can't add to that. I just feel like God is telling me to do this. He's not. He's not. He provides for divorce. We're going to see it in a second. He doesn't want it. He doesn't desire it. He doesn't will it. He doesn't plan for it. It is not God's will for your marriage that it end in divorce. That's why I love love 
this practicality from Tim Keller. Tim Keller wrote a book called The Meaning of Marriage. I'm actually going to be teaching an equipping class through this book starting June 4th. If you want to get a copy of it, just look it up, uh, The Meaning of Marriage by Tim Keller. It's, it's phenomenal. Um, he says in that book that two-thirds of couples who consider divorce, if they hang on, are happy in their marriages five years later. If you think divorce is your only option, allow Jesus' strong words to be a buffer for your marriage today. Just hold on. He prohibits it. All right, second thing we need to see. Although he prohibits it, there is a provision. There's a provision for divorce. Do I have you on edge yet? That was my goal, um, to have you on edge. Okay, cool. Some of you, good. Um, Let's dive into Jesus' exception clause. Honestly, we could say, as I said earlier, this is more Matthew's exception clause than than we could even say Jesus. Jesus said it, but Matthew is the only gospel writer to include it. He mentions it twice. He mentions it in Matthew 5, and he mentions it in Matthew 19. And no one else in the New Testament mentions it once. It's, It's interesting. So I want us to answer three questions. Why is the provision made at all? What is the provision? And what does it mean for us? All right. First... And this is an important question. Why is there a provision made at all? I hope you felt the strength of what Jesus is saying there. Without the exception, he's saying divorce and remarriage are never permissible because it is not God's design for marriage. Why, if he takes such a strong stance against divorce and remarriage, and if Jesus holds such a high view of marriage, why would any provision be given at all? Why didn't he say, yeah, Moses did say that? But now, in my kingdom, things are different, and it's never permissible. Well, two reasons. First, the hardness of human hearts. If you were looking at Matthew 19, after Jesus reminded the Pharisees that divorce was never part of God's plan for marriage, we find this really interesting interaction. The Pharisees said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And by the way, uh, isn't that interesting how they put that? Command. We're commanded to give a certificate of divorce. Already warping it a little bit. But here's what Jesus says in response. Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So just to reorient ourselves, divorce is prohibited because of God's design for marriage. From the beginning, Jesus says, it was not so. Divorce is not God's will. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. This is what he's saying. But because of your hardness of heart, Jesus says, permission to divorce in very specific circumstances, was granted. Here's the thing. Divorce is not God's plan, but people are just so sinful and so stubborn and so prideful and so hard-hearted sometimes. Just think of a man who's had an affair on his wife, and she's crushed, absolutely heartbroken. But through maybe some time away, 
and tons of support and tons of counsel and tons of grace and power from the Spirit, she resolves to seek reconciliation and to extend forgiveness and to try to restore the relationship and pick up the pieces and put it back together. She approaches her husband, but he doesn't see any fault on his part. He just tells her to get over it. He has nothing to be sorry for. And and maybe she even demonstrates an abundance of patience and tries to give him time to see his sin. And in the meantime, he cheats again, and he cheats again, and he cheats again, and he cheats again. Hardness of heart. Divorce is permitted in such a situation only because of such hard-heartedness. God hasn't all of a sudden changed his view of marriage. It's our fault that divorce is a reality. Because husbands and wives can sometimes be like Pharaoh, the way that he was before the Lord, divorce is an unwanted provision. And second, building off of this, the second reason that there's a provision here is God is so merciful. We see the mercy of God's heart. Divorce is painful, always. Divorce is not God's will, never. But due to the hardness of human hearts, God responds not with judgment or harshness, but he balances that with grace and mercy. He mercifully provides for some marriages to end. And we know this is mercy because it's not what he wants. What he wants is the permanent one flesh union of one man and one woman. Yet under the provisions that we're going to deal with next, he has made a way for adulterous or neglectful or abusive marriages to end and for newer, healthier marriages to form as a result. God is merciful in giving this provision. What is the provision? And this this is what we all are here for, um, to see when is it permissible to divorce. And by the way, if you're approaching this passage like that, like let me just mine the depths of the scriptures to find me a list of all the different reasons that I have to divorce, you're doing it wrong. You're playing the game the wrong way. That's not how you're meant to approach it. But when is divorce permissible and when is remarriage appropriate? Because there are cases when divorce is permissible and remarriage is appropriate. Here's what Jesus says in Matthew 5. I say to you, everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And then in Matthew 19, he says something very similar. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. Except on the ground of sexual immorality. Remarriage is possible without becoming adulterous when sexual immorality has happened. Uh, The Greek word that's used there is porneia. Um, Moikeia is not used, which is the word for adultery. Porneia is used. It's a general term that's used to refer to a multitude of sexual sins, including adultery. And when it's used in the context of marriage, it is often used to mean adultery. And so for Jesus, if adultery is committed against you by your spouse, you have grounds for divorce. And he says nothing more than that. And before we move any further, we need to just rest in that. That's what Jesus says. That you have grounds for divorce if adultery has been committed. 
Now, the Apostle Paul gives a different exception. He says in 1 Corinthians 7 that if an unbelieving spouse abandons you, just leaves, then the believing abandoned spouse is free to pursue divorce and remarriage. They're not bound to that marriage any longer. So what we see here are two exceptions, adultery and abandonment. And this is where we start to get in trouble. This is where we get in trouble. We try to fill in the gaps. We try to fill in the gaps. And here's, here's why we have to be careful with that. The Bible doesn't address every single possible valid reason for divorce. For instance, neither Jesus nor Paul directly say abuse in a marriage is an exception to the permanence of marriage. All right, let's be uncomfortable with that for a second. Jesus doesn't say it. Paul doesn't say it. Don't make them say what they didn't say. That's not the way to deal with this. Does that mean that we counsel women in abusive relationships, hey, you're stuck. I'm sorry. I know it's not safe, but until he cheats or he leaves, you are stuck. You cannot divorce and remarry. Is that, is that, is that what's required? I hate it for you, but you can't. No. No, of course not. Just because Scripture doesn't specifically outline an exception clause for abuse doesn't mean abuse isn't a justifiable reason to pursue divorce. I mean, think about it. Think about how silly that, that perspective would be. Jesus said nothing about abandonment. He didn't say anything about it. He didn't say sexual immorality and abandonment. He didn't say that. Paul said nothing of adultery. He only mentions abandonment. Does that mean anything? Well, it means nothing more than that they were each making specific points to specific audiences. And in fact, looking for a neat and tidy and exhaustive list to follow gets us dangerously close to pharisaical righteousness anyway. So let me suggest a broader general principle that I think brings everything together and I hope helps us make sense of the provision of divorce. Divorce and remarriage are permissible only when the marriage covenant has been violated. That's when. And only then. Because the emphasis of Jesus here is on the only. There's an exception. It's not the rule. The exception. Only when the marriage covenant has been violated are divorce and remarriage permissible in God's kingdom. And I'll be safe, and I'm going to limit the list of permissible reasons for divorce and remarriage to three and show you how it works. Adultery, abandonment, and abuse. The marriage covenant, in case you're unfamiliar, is the loving commitment of a man and a woman in a permanent one flesh union to do two things. To be with one another and to be for one another. To be with your spouse and to be for your spouse is simplified covenant language. That's what God commits to us. His presence and his loving faithfulness. He is with us and he is for us. Always and forever. And that's what the marriage covenant is all about too. And that's why we make wedding vows. Wedding vows aren't just warm and fuzzy feelings that we feel for one another on our wedding day. Wedding vows are promises of future covenant love and faithfulness. I take you to be my wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day what? 
Any of y'all get married before? Been a while. Forward. Yeah, been a while. Forward. Um, For better or worse, for richer or poor, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death do us part. These are covenant promises to be with and for one another. When that covenant is violated, there are grounds for divorce. Adultery and abandonment. They violate the being with your spouse aspect of the covenant. You've defiled the permanent one flesh union by running to another person or running away altogether. Abuse violates the being for your spouse aspect of the covenant. And you've defiled the permanent one flesh union by turning against your spouse. So to keep Jesus' intention before us, unless your spouse violates the marriage covenant, you have no grounds for divorce. But if your spouse violates the marriage covenant, you do have grounds for divorce. Now, what does this mean? What does it mean? What are we supposed to do with this exception clause? Well, your aim in marriage should be to do nothing with them. Nothing whatsoever. You don't, you don't even want to have to think about an exception clause whatsoever. But, but here are a few things to keep in mind. First, you need to remember, this provision is not, I repeat, not meant to be an excuse for you to look for a way out of your marriage. It is hard-heartedness and divine mercy that creates the provision for divorce. Divorce, even when permissible, is not God's desire for your marriage. So don't misuse it. This is not, that's not how it's supposed to be used. Second, remember, Pharisees would have really struggled with this. And, and we are prone to struggle with it too. This is a provision, not a requirement. This isn't a command. We are permitted to divorce under these circumstances. Not required. Jesus never says that adultery requires you to end your marriage. Although you may, and you have grounds to do so. You're not required to divorce under any circumstance. John Stott, a famous pastor, writer, he was known for refusing to talk to someone about divorce until they had first had a conversation about the purpose of marriage and the hope of reconciliation. Those conversations happened first. Then they talked about divorce. So if your spouse violates the marriage covenant, in most, definitely not all, but in most circumstances, your first step shouldn't be, all right, where's that divorce certificate? Your first step should be, is there a way for redemption and reconciliation and restoration to happen? Not immediately. It will take a lot of time, and you will require a ton of help. But provision is not requirement. One last thing. Sometimes divorce is the only option. Sometimes it is the only option. People are evil. Marriages break. And sometimes they just remain broken. And in these cases of adultery, abandonment, and abuse, divorce is justified and sometimes necessary. But if you are thinking about divorce, 
either for a legitimate or illegitimate reason, if that word has ever come up in your marriage, or if it's there right now, if you have put it on the table, please seek counsel. Please reach out to me, one of our elders. We can connect you to to someone if we need to, or we would love nothing more than to walk through that valley with you. We want to be there with you. The worst thing you can do is make a decision like that in isolation. You need support. You need friends. You need pastors. You need the church. If you're thinking about it, seek help. And we're here for you. Listen, marriage is so precious. Divorce is so serious. I hope you've seen that today. But it's so precious and it's so serious. In response to Jesus' teaching in Matthew 19, which is the same thing we have in Matthew 5, do you know what his disciples said? Jesus finishes with all that. And he finishes, uh, you know, and he says essentially what, what we have here in verse 32 Uh, everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. Whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Do you know what they said in response to that? If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. That's what the disciples said. And oddly enough, the Apostle Paul sort of agrees with them. Because later, he said this in 1 Corinthians 7. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to remain single as I am. So listen, as we consider Jesus' teaching on marriage and divorce, we need to remember, first, that marriage is a wonderful gift, worthy of our desire and worthy of our participation. But it is not necessary in his kingdom. Marriage is not eternal Marriage cannot save you. It cannot justify your existence. It is a terrible idol. And maybe this morning you've heard nothing but piercing words. Maybe as you reflect on what you've heard, you you see that you have not followed a biblical approach to divorce and remarriage. Maybe you've realized that you actually have a pretty low view of your own marriage. Maybe you've been hit by a wave of guilt. Fear not. Because the Jesus who holds out such a high expectation for marriage and divorce is the one who would later set his face toward Jerusalem to face the rejection and the exile that we deserve. Jesus was cast out left to hang on a cross outside the city gates to fully absorb the wrath of God and fully atone for all of our sins, every single one. So if you're here and you struggle with those in your life who have violated the marriage covenant or if you yourself have violated the marriage covenant or you've divorced in a way that is unbiblical, you need to remember, not even your sinful divorce will cause God to run out on you. Not even your sinful actions that may have led to a divorce will cause God to run away from you. Your sin and your guilt may be deeper than any of us could ever imagine. And you may be feeling the depths of that guilt right now. But God's mercy goes deeper. His grace plums the depths of your heart and covers you with the blood of Jesus. Received by faith. 
Jesus offered himself in your place to die for all of your sins, to bring you into the only eternal marriage, a marriage full of covenant faithfulness. He has poured out his blood to wash you clean, to cleanse you from the inside out. God is faithful to this covenant relationship, and he will never, ever give up on you, and he will never, ever leave. May we model this covenant love in our marriages. And may our family, friends, and city see a flesh and blood embodiment of the gospel in our marriages.